0: Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official pop pantheon. I am your host, DJ Louis the 14th. Lovely to have you guys back again. I want to kick this week off with a very special announcement. I am starting a new pop party here in Los Angeles. It's called Gorgeous Gorgeous, it is a queer-centric party, although we are more than happy to accommodate all of our gorgeous allies at this party. If you live in Los Angeles and you want to come out and see me DJ all of your favorite pop tunes, mostly pop girlies, let's be frank, for five hours, we're going to have amazing drag performances, we have incredible people hosting it. It's going to be on April 22nd at Resident in downtown LA. I'm going to put the details for tickets and everything in the show notes of the episode. I would love to have the Pop Pantheon fans out there. It's going to be so much fun. As passionate as I am about talking about pop music, I am very passionate about DJing it. And frankly, probably better at doing that than I am at doing this podcast. So please come out. April 22nd, 9 p.m. to 2 p.m. I'll be DJing all night. As I said, amazing performances, amazing people. I couldn't be more excited about this. And the link to buy tickets will be in the show notes of this episode. And I will also put them on social media. So I hope to see you there, guys. Next up, I want to get into our newest tradition, reading some of my favorite reviews from Apple Podcasts. There's been some truly hilarious ones lately, like this one from Polly Paul Fan, who says, a tier one podcast, extremely thorough and exceptionally researched without being verbose and too long winded. I'm not sure if that's true, but I really appreciate you saying so. The podcast could have been Britney Jean, but instead it's a blackout. (laughs) Ah, there's many artists I can't wait for Louie to rank, including TLC. I love that. Here's one that says, new obsession. So my friends and I have been talking about this podcast for a few months. Nothing could be better than starting a conversation about where pop stars rank. My first episode was Diana Ross, and I've quickly run through Kesha, Gaga, and Madonna. The episode on Madonna was incredibly brutal. I enjoyed it, but wish this episode was focused a little bit more on her rise and hold on the pop scene for a decade plus now, instead of just how she's handled things so poorly in comparison to Janet. I want to respond to this one quickly. Sorry, this was by board in 571. I want to respond to this one quickly just by saying that that Madonna episode was not supposed to be that way. I was still really early in the making of the show, and I hadn't quite figured out how to do episodes on artists with the discography of a Madonna, and I didn't do it right. (laughs) Like I know a lot of people like that episode and I love it too, but I am planning to return to Madonna and to do a proper episode on Madonna. So I want people to know that. I know that that's been said before to me in the past and I agree with you. It's one of the only episodes where we don't really like, cover the whole discography, and that's unfair to the most important pop star of all time, so I wanted to respond to that directly and say that I am planning to rectify that. Another one that I wanted to read is one that really dragged me, and I think if you're going to drag me, you got to be prepared for me to mention it on air. Someone wrote, lay off Katy Perry respectfully. This podcast deserves no fewer than five stars. Thank you. It's thoughtful, playful, has stellar guests, and is anchored by Louise wealth of pop knowledge. My one request, there is Katy Perry slander on every other episode. I'm not even a Katy stan, but it's getting exhausting. Why is Louis so obsessed with Katy? Listen, I want to answer this question. First of all, it's all meant in good fun. I don't mean this to be mean-spirited. I'm sorry if it's coming off that way. But the truth of the matter is the reason that Katy Perry comes up so much on the show is because I do think her career is indicative of the most basic pop star trajectory. So it's an easy reference point. It's not because I'm trying to like drag her in particular. I really like a lot of things about Katy Perry, but her career and the way it's gone to me just represents something standard that's easy to reference, which is why she comes up a lot. So that's my answer to that question. I appreciate the feedback. I want to remind people that our contest for leaving an artist in the review section that you want us to fast track an episode on is quickly coming to an end. A lot of people have left reviews and requested artists they want to have featured on the podcast. And there are some finalists I want to announce. The artists with the most requests so far in the finals of the contest are... Mariah Carey, Taylor Swift, and Usher. Now, the Taylor episode is in the works in some fashion, so I kind of want to cut that out of the conversation. But, let's say Mariah and Usher are our finalists. Which of those would you prefer our fast-tracked episode on? Please leave a comment in Apple Podcast and let me know between those two who you want it to be. I'm going to give you guys another week or two to weigh in on those two things, and the winner between those two finalists is going to be the episode that we fast-track. So, that's the update on that. As usual, please follow us at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and follow me DJ Xiv on both Instagram and Twitter. Get in the Discord. The link for that is in the show notes and will be on social media. If you have any questions about Pop Pantheon or about Pop in general, make sure you send them to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Check out our Spotify playlist for every episode. They are also linked in the show notes and on social media. And that's it for me I think we should just get into it for this week which is an episode on a classic of my childhood and somebody that I really think is perfect for this show because she's someone whose career I think could use a little bit of a retrospective reassessment and that's why Pop Pantheon is here so without further ado here is Pop Pantheon Legendina Aguilera. Come on Much has been made of the, depending on your view, either venerated or reviled teen pop boom of the late 90s and early 2000s. It's one of the most distinct micro-movements in modern pop, a period of maybe three or four years where a very specific sound, shimmering, joyously maximalist post r haughtily vapid and masterfully produced within an inch of its life, completely consumed the charts, as did a very particular type of artist, A teenager, usually white, with an image that split the difference between all-American prom kings and queens next door and a just-on-the-QT-come-hither sexuality. This movement personified for many the term, quote-unquote, manufactured, or pop that was scientifically engineered in boardrooms to maximize sales and minimize autonomy. And it was so monumentally successful that most of its signature stars couldn't break out of its mold once the boom inevitably went bust. One notable exception to this rule, however, is one of the movement's biggest breakout stars, Christina Aguilera, who, with her robust four-octave soprano and brazen bucking of teen pop values with her second album, 2002 Stripped, managed to defy expectations and live into a pretty dynamic, idiosyncratic pop career that's though loaded with ups and downs managed to span the last 25 years and feel notable largely beyond just being another TRL footnote. Christina may have been an icon of the team pop boom, but through sheer grit, talent and let's be honest, hutzpa has proven herself to be so much more. All I want is you. Christina Aguilera was born on Staten Island to an Ecuadorian father and a white mother, but was raised primarily in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. Christina has often recounted in music and otherwise a pretty turbulent upbringing, rife with domestic abuse at the hands of her father, and at a young age, she turned to music as a form of escape. From early in her life, Christina's vocal gifts were obvious, and she was dubbed, quote, the little girl with the big voice in her neighborhood. After doing well in numerous talent shows, including Star Search, she eventually landed a spot on Disney's The Mickey Mouse Club, where she appeared from 1991 to 1994, singing songs and acting in sketches alongside other future superstars like Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, and Ryan Gosling. After the show was canceled, Christina muddled around a bit trying to figure out how to get her music career off the ground before getting her big break in 1998, when she was selected by Disney to sing the theme song from the animated film Mulan, Reflection. Reflection went on to be a modest adult contemporary hit and landed Christina a record deal with RCA. During the creation of her self-titled debut, however, her fellow Mickey Mouse co-star Britney Spears exploded into public consciousness as the new face of the teen pop boom, and RCA moved quickly to mold Christina in Britney's image, crafting an album of clean-cut bubblegum pop that in many ways obscured her formidable vocal gifts, yet felt entirely of the moment. The results were a spectacular success, at least commercially. Released in 1999, Christina Aguilera opened at number one, has sold over 14 million copies to date, earned Christina a Best New Artist Grammy, and spawned a series of indelible hits from the era the number three, Peaking I Turn to You, and the three number ones, Come On Over, Baby, All I Want Is You, What a Girl Wants, and the iconic debut single, Genie in a Bottle. This record made Christina a massive superstar, one of the superlative queens of the TRL era. Behind the scenes, Christina was unhappy. An iconoclast at heart who saw herself more in the traditions of Etta James and Madonna than of Backstreet and Britney, Christina bucked label pressure and took three years to record her sophomore album. In the interim, she released both a Spanish-language album, Miraflejo, in 2000, as well as a Christmas album. Most notably, she appeared on the number one smash cover of Lady Marmalade, alongside Pink, Little Kim, Maya, and Missy Elliott from the Moulin Rouge soundtrack, where her show-stealing final verse and vocal runs are often noted as one of her signature performances. Christina also fired her manager, Steve Kurtz, and hired the legendary Irving Azoff to help her realize an entirely new image and sound on her next album, 2002's Stripped. When Christina released that record's lead single, Dirty, the shift in style, tone, and image was nothing short of drastic. Now operating under a pseudonym, Xtina, the Christina of Stripped was bold, barashi, unapologetically sex-forward, and, as the single title promised, a little bit messy. She had dreads in her hair, her makeup was smeared, and the song's accompanying music video was a scandal for its era. Featuring Christina in Barely There miniskirts and assless chaps, while the song, an aggressive hip-hop party anthem, heralded the arrival of what felt like an entirely new artist. Within the span of five minutes, Dirty successfully obliterated the manicured pop starlet of Come On Over Baby." But while the video became a classic of the period, and the song has, in retrospect, become one of her best-remembered records, Dirty stiffed on the charts, peaking at number 48. Strip's commercial fortunes, however, were saved by a very different second single, a spare piano ballad written by four non-blondes Linda Perry called Beautiful. A heartfelt, earnest anthem of self-love and acceptance, Beautiful repositioned Christina, oddly enough, as a pop non-conformist who stood up for and saw herself in marginalized outsiders, and was the best showcase for her titanic voice yet. The song peaked at number two and stands today as her definitive hit. also helped launch a series of other hits from Stripped. The rock anthem Fighter and the groovy R&B girl power Battle Cry Can't Hold Us Down. The album has sold over 8 million copies in the US alone and is still considered to be Christina's artistic peak as well as her most influential body of work, perhaps most pertinently for the way Christina took charge of her career, image, and sound in the face of label pressure. Christina again took quite a bit of time to follow up Stripped, with four years elapsing between that record and her audacious double album, 2006's Back to Basics, another project which came complete with a radical image overhaul, this time positing Christina as a classic 1950s pinup in the style of Betty Page. An explicit homage to the soul and R&B greats Christina grew up idolizing like Billie Holiday, Otis Redding, and Ella Fitzgerald, the first disc of Back to Basics featured mostly 90s style hip-hop tracks, largely produced by the legendary DJ Premier, complete with prominent soul samples, some of her best vocal performances yet, and lyrics that nodded at her reverence for bygone eras of music, as well as ones that celebrated her marriage to her first husband, Jordan Bratman. The second disc was produced entirely by Linda Perry and featured more direct, homages to big band jazz and blues back to basics was lauded commercially and performed decently if not quite on the level of her first two albums and produced one top 10 hit the brassy horn-laden lead single ain't no other man Following back to basics though, Christina's career entered a pretty rocky middle and latter period, punctuated by some daring moves that didn't quite pan out, but also some fluke successes and a cultural reassessment that's helped reshuffle her as a camp and gay icon. In 2010, she released her fourth album, Bionic, yet another sonic and aesthetic revamp. This Christina was now a futuristic, icy dance pop diva. While the album featured some truly bonkers experiments, including a couple songs written by agit-pop Princess MIA, as well as the first major songwriting placements for future top line superstar Sia, the record came out in the midst of an explosion of a new generation of dance divas like Lady Gaga and Rihanna, and as a result, made the once trailblazing Christina seem like she was playing a bit of catch up with her progeny. The record was initially seen as a massive disappointment, featuring no top 10 singles, selling a fraction of her previous work, and basically inventing the now common parlance flop but has grown in stature since it's release, now viewed by many as a cult classic, I think including Christina herself. She followed Bionic up quickly with 2012's Lotus, a pivot towards more conventional mainstream pop sounds that was an even bigger commercial failure, selling only 300,000 copies in the United States. At the same time, however, Christina's celebrity was sustained in other ways, through features on massive hits like Maroon 5's number one moves like Jagger in 2011, and likewise on a Great Big World's number four peaking 2013 single, say something she also appeared as a judge on the hit singing competition the voice and released her critically well-received latest studio album liberation in 2018 while launching a successful vegas residency the experience in 2019 Christina Aguilera has sold over 75 million records worldwide. She has five number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100 and 10 top 10s. She's won five Grammy Awards, two VMAs, one Billboard Music Award, and has one Guinness World Record. Time named her to be one of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2013, and she's often noted as one of the greatest singers of all time, ranked as such in magazines like Rolling Stone and Consequence of Sound. Here with me on the podcast to help break down the career and music of legend Tina Aguilera is writer and podcaster Evan Ross Katz. Okay, so I'm here with writer and podcaster Evan Ross Katz. Evan, welcome to Paw Pantheon. Thank you. I'm very delighted to be here.
1: Yeah, and we kind of go back, don't we? We do. I actually go back as well with your sister, but yes, I go back with the whole family.
0: Yes, you went you and uh, Lily went to college together. Yes. I'm so excited to have you here today to talk about an artist I know you're very, very passionate about, and I know an artist that a lot of fans of this podcast have been interested in hearing an episode on, and I, as I was thinking about putting this together, I literally woke up in the middle of the night. I had been thinking, like, how who should be on a Christina episode, blah, 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 and I can't remember what it was. Maybe I saw a tweet of yours or something, and I woke up, and I was like, duh, I gotta have Evan on to talk about Christina, so I'm so excited to have you here today.
1: I'm excited to be here. I grew up in Pittsburgh, so I've I've been a fan of Christina's since, I mean, the Mickey Mouse Club days, but she was a really big deal in the interim between Mickey Mouse Club and Mulan, and so I remember, like, going to Pittsburgh Penguins games just to hear her sing the national anthem when she was in her teens, so I feel like I... This day has long been coming, but I'm a long time fan of hers and not fair weather, no matter the weather.
0: <laughs> I honestly, that's incredible. I did not realize that that was what the connection was. I was actually going to ask you when you started to stand, but I didn't realize that you had a geographical birthplace. Or Was she born there? She was born in Staten Island, right?
1: She was born in Staten Island. She grew up in, I think, Beaver County, which is technically outside of Pittsburgh, but she went to high school at North Allegheny, which was sort of like within the Pittsburgh school district. And she was kind of legendary in her teens. Like People knew about her. They knew about this young girl because of the Mickey Mouse Club, but also she was recognized because she would go around the city and perform at various events. And, you know, as anyone who's heard her sing at a young age knows, it was evident that the talent was there from the outset. So it was just very clear that this was someone special. Hometown hero. Like hometown hero, yes. Andy every... Warhol and Christina Aguilera. <laughs> and Gertrude uh, Stein. We've got three.
0: Whoa, that is like a lot of <laughs> massive pop cultural figures, honestly. And also like the, the Warhol-Christina connection is actually kind of interesting because they're almost like camp figures in a certain sense together. Agreed, agreed. Where is that That's collab? That's <laughs> She could have had a Warhol done of her if they had overlapped in their careers. <laughs> uh,
1: what could have been?
0: So I'd like to kind of take us back here before we get into Christina. And, you know, this is our first episode that we've done where we've like gotten to talk about sort of the teen pop boom of the 90s. So I feel like this is a good opportunity for us to just sort of lay out for people a little bit like what that was all about on a certain level. And, you know, we both lived through it. We're both of prime age to have been the ultimate, I guess, core fan base of the MTV teen pop boom of the late 90s. And that was, you know, a huge part of Christina's emergence. And I think something that was interesting in her career in particular, because I don't think she necessarily really liked being part of that. And I feel like she spent a lot of her career trying to rectify whatever corner that, She felt that that put her in, even though I think in many people's imagination, she's so inextricably linked to that era and to that specific moment in pop. So what were the features of that? If you had to, how would you define that movement of glistening, frothy, teen-oriented, manufactured,
1: I guess would be the word that gets used a lot with it, MTV era teen pop? I always come back to that Baby One More Time album cover as sort of like being the definitive image of pop at that point. Unlike sort of the pop year before it, where you got more figures that were in their 20s, like pop stars were more in their 20s and late 20s, early 30s whatnot. I think the pop boom really signified the beginning of seeing really young talent across the board. I'm not saying there had never been a teen pop star before, but the ubiquity of them made it so that young people growing up, we were able to see ourselves in the pop stars more. And you see this even today with our media. There's nothing that collectively people want, or I should say think they want more (laughs) than the ability to See themselves in in the media, you know, Absolutely. in some sense. Yes. And then add on to that, this sprinkling of the male gaze within all of this, and the sexualization mm. of so many of these pop stars, made a whole generation of women, gay men, non-binary individuals, and even maybe some straight men out there feel as though they were magnetized to it in some way. Whether or not it was attraction, whether or not it was wanting to be them whether or not it was some combination of the two. But there was that element to it as well. And then from the older perspective, it was sort of like the perverse aspect of older people preying on teens. I mean, it's Mm. sort of gross to think about, but I definitely think that was an element. For sure. I mean, I think
0: there was an element, at least in like broader public perception of like, the machine had studied the way pop stardom had worked over the last 40 years and had decided to just mechanize it in the most sort of cynical way possible. At least if you were looking at it from like an older person's perspective, that seems to me like one of the main features of how you might define this era, because again, the the and I don't think this is fair at all to many of the talents of this era, but the word that always comes up is manufactured. And that's in terms of image. That's in terms of the music. You know, there's something about it that I think felt like cynical to people on a certain level in terms of yeah. like, maybe there were sounds and aesthetic elements that were being drawn on from Madonna, that were being drawn on from Janet. But in Madonna and Janet's era, I guess there were plenty of people during those times that found them manufactured as well but i think in terms of like even fans of madonna and Janet, i think looked at artists like britney backstreet all of them and said this is a to use the queen's term reductive version of what has come before it and is 100 percent driven by men in boardrooms as opposed to like artistic impetus in a sense
1: Right, and I think culturally at the time there was less introspection in terms of asking the questions of like, where are these things coming from? Is this the person's desire to make these statements that they're making on these songs or be so sexualized? Or is this, as you mentioned, a boardroom full of mostly white men? I don't think we were asking the same questions in our media. I mean, obviously with the Britney story as it's been developing we're seeing this, and also not just the Britney story, but there's a larger reckoning around sort of how we look back at this moment in pop culture, but I think in ways it even extends to this conversation around the kind of music that artists were making, and the kind of producers they were working with, and just in general, how few women songwriters and our producers there were being given opportunities to write for artists like Christina.
0: Right. So how did that music sound? I mean, you lived through it. We all were, grew up on this music. Like, how, What was the sound of the music, just
1: generally speaking, during that time? I think it was just like very scientifically created in a way that you want to play on repeat. Tell me why. Other thing was everyone knew it. And I think we do get songs like this today, but not as often. And I think because music videos held such a prominence at the time, and you couldn't go on in a place like YouTube and to view the video, you had to view it when it was playing on TRL. There was just a uniformity amongst how we were consuming our media that made it so much more sacred. And so, like Mm. I remember in particular the come on over video, because I really feel like that was a shift, you know? Mm. I think we're gonna talk about many shifts for her, Mm -hmm. but that was one of many, but that was one in particular that was really notable for me. And I remember just coming home, and I think it was a combination of the song and the accompanying visual, but I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And because it wasn't at my disposal, I sort of hungered for it more and more. And I think mm. that element, the idea that you couldn't just access it yourself, you had to wait, or, you know, calling into the radio stations at the time and requesting it, i was <laughs> that was a big part of my culture. Just remembering all of that, this idea that, like, supply was less, demand was more. And I think when you look at today's musical landscape, I think it has completely shifted, right. um, which is really fascinating.
0: I find myself these days, like, I can't even get through, like, all the new music. Like, I feel like I'm completely overwhelmed all the time, and I don't have any time to give anything the attention that I, like, Wish that I could. The other part of the music, as I think you were sort of getting at in your answer, is the scientificness of it. I mean, these are great but sort of anodyne pop songs. Like Mm -hmm. they are perfect. Like if you listen to Hit Me Baby One More Time or all the great Max Martin songs of this era, who obviously is one of the preeminent musical engineers of this sound, they are perfect songs. but they lack idiosyncrasy. They have his idiosyncrasies. They have his sort of Swedish inability to speak English properly, whatever, all the things we know. We did a whole episode on this podcast about Max Martin, if you want to go back and listen to that. But I think in the sense of the earlier pop stars of the sort of mainstream pop era, starting with Janet and Madonna and... Prince and Michael were all personality driven. And there was always this impetus behind that music for us to be getting like a very deeply personal narrative. And for those artists to have us believe that they were the driving artistic forces behind their work. Even if you were dealing with somebody like Janet, who was very tied to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were like, you know, giant, well-known producers who are known to have played a huge role in creating her sound every single album was like what's going on in Janet's life this music is very personal this music is her perspective she's doing you know whatever and I think a lot of these TRL stars had to fight for that later in their career and Christina's a very good example of an artist that really fought for that kind of narrative to be formed around her post coming out of the teen pop era but in that first wave of it in the actual era where they were all ensconced in this teen pop TRL sort of manufactured if we're using that term boom they They were all kind of singing almost interchangeable songs in a sense. Like you could picture these songs getting passed around between any of them. It was more about the perfection of the material, I guess, in terms of just being scientifically engineered to be catchy, as also you were getting at, than it was about who are these individuals as people and how do we like capture their idiosyncratic personalities? You know what I mean? So let's rewind and now go back to Christina. So... As you mentioned, she grows up outside of Pittsburgh. She's a hometown hero. How does she end up on the Mickey Mouse Club?
1: I think she just auditioned. I honestly think at the time, yeah, I think she went and auditioned and they saw, again, like I said, she had the talent from the outset and they saw that. But right, like, if you look at how many people came from that show, there's a reason. Like, whoever was casting it, they had a good eye and a good ear.
0: What were they doing on that show? What were Christina and Britney and Justin? Like, what was happening on the Mickey Mouse Club?
1: Well, there were sketch, I mean, I don't even know if you'd call them sketches, like kind of skits almost you would say. It kind of all of that is a successor to all of this. But yeah, they were doing sketches and then they were singing songs. <laughs> It was interesting because it was aimed at a younger audience, but it definitely, it didn't feel like Nick Jr. You know what I mean? Like, it felt like it definitely, you could watch it as an older person and still, the talent was there. It didn't feel, I don't know, I feel like if they were to try to do one today, it would get very Disney-ified in a way, and it didn't have that Disney sheen to Even it. Even though it was I, Disney. Disney. Yeah, and I used Disney Sheena like in the negative. I, I I found it really authentic. Mm. I have this distinct memory
0: of her just murdering at like eleven or twelve. Tony Braxton's another sad love song. <laughs> I, again, I'm the, I wasn't like a connoisseur of the Mickey Mouse Club, but I do feel like her vocal talent really stood out from the pack, even on the show from the beginning.
1: Yes, that is very, very true. So she
0: has the success on the Mickey Mouse Club. Are they stars from that? Like are Brittany, Christina, Justin, like are they individual stars or are they just kind of part of this show and it's not really about sort of like them having individual
1: fan bases? I don't think that they were big stars because first of all, it's not like as though there were albums or anything that was put out that could be consumed. And it's not as though they had social media presence. Like the only access that you as a fan had to them was on the show. And you kind of think of it this way. Like, I remember like when I was growing up and I was watching all that, I knew them on the show, but I wasn't seeking out those people elsewhere. Or Mary I wouldn't Beth even know Denmark. where to. <laughs> exactly. So I think that they were certainly famous when the show was on. But when the show ended, I don't think there was like a trajectory with which to go on whereas today if it existed they would be able to stay famous because of social media and endorsements and all the other stuff. I just don't think the mechanisms for fame existed at this time. So I think that they were famous, but I think fame meant a very different thing at that time.
0: Right. And there wasn't sort of this ensconced trajectory from child stardom to pop stardom. Like now it's like, if you're on Disney, if you're Selena Gomez, if you're Miley, if you're Demi, if you're Olivia Rodrigo, you know that from the beginning of you being on whatever show you're on in this teen context where this is going eventually and you're Trying to set that up in a way that, like, they were just sort of cogs in the machine almost in a sense on the Mickey Mouse Club. Completely. So then, how does she move from being this kind of almost anonymous, talented kid to like getting a record deal and putting out the song Reflection, which is kind of her big breakthrough? on the Mulan soundtrack how, what do you know the story of that I do uh well, she
1: was in the bath <laughs> she was in the bathroom and she decided to record a cover of Whitney Houston's run to you in the bathroom and famously it has a very high note in the song I don't know the exact note I'm sure someone listening does but so she did several takes in the bathroom until she was able to hit the note but it said that because of that note because of her ability to hit that note the executives over at Disney were like let's give her this song for the Mulan soundtrack and, and she's how old that- she's how old at this point I I think she's 15 15 or 16 Mm -hmm. and at this point she's back in pittsburgh mickey mouse club has been off the air for several years she's more or less living a normal teen life but records that demo of run to you sends it over and then is given the song reflection and i think there's some alchemy of the song being so good and christina's voice being so good that it really was this perfect marriage of talent and material Mm -hmm. and then i think reflection just took on a life of its own
0: Christina, the product of like stage parents? I mean, like, what's her family vibe like?
1: So she doesn't speak to her father, her father hasn't been a part of her life has been a part of her musical journey in the sense of someone that she speaks about. She has a sister, and then she has her mom. Her mom's a single mom, and then her grandma also helped raise her. So they were a family of four growing up, and I think that there was a lot of turmoil. I mean, I know that her mother, and she's saying about this and spoken about it before, her mother experienced domestic abuse when Christina was younger, something that Christina was witness to. So I think Christina Mm. had a difficult life in terms of both having to deal with a moment of fame and then not having fame. And I know she's spoken about the fact that she was teased in school, which is just so funny because it's like, she's the opposite of an outcast, but it just goes to show you that it's like no one is exempt from bullying whatever walk of life we come from.
0: Right, not even like a beautiful, talented future exactly,
1: (laughs) Exactly. But so I think that she had some strife in her early years, and I think that part of the emotion that exists in her that comes out in various ways, but particularly comes out on tracks like I'm Okay from Stripped, I think that all sort of is informed by a childhood that was probably I get the sense spent imagining a life bigger than the one that she had mm. like you know finding a place outside of where she was
0: Kind of like the classic modern pop diva story in a sense. I mean, that's a thing they all talk about. I mean, I read Mariah's book last year and that was her whole vibe too. Like domestic abuse, single mother, dreaming of a life of fantasy. And it's fascinating with Christina that a lot of times Disney and sort of that kind of princessy vibe is an element of the fantasy. And it's fascinating that Christina's breakthrough is on this giant Disney ballad, (laughs) Reflection.
1: Right. And what's so interesting about Reflection as a song is it's like, obviously it's resonant to Christina from her own experiences in life but I think the reason why the song remains so indelible is because of the fact that everyone can imbue their own narrative onto Reflection look
2: at me you may think you see who I really am but you'll never know me every day it's as if I play a part now I see If I wear a mask, I can fool the world, but I cannot fool.
1: Uh, reflection in the trans community is a really huge anthem for so many people this idea of like you know who am i really versus the person that people sometimes see so i think that song it's like obviously a very personal track to christina but i also think it's a personal song for so many such as also the case with beautiful years later but so i think reflection was just a huge moment and i think it can't again with that alchemy thing i think reflection is a wonderfully written song but i think it was because of christina that it took off i mean like Mm. no disrespect to leah salonga who's version of the song from the movie is fantastic. (laughs) Oh my God. But I think Christina really was able to capture something that captured people.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And it's interesting too, what you said about this sort of connection to the trans community, because I feel like Christina has become such an LGBTQ centric icon even more so almost I mean obviously beautiful was a huge moment for that in her placing of same sex couples in that video was pretty revolutionary I think at that moment but I also think in terms of just like her status as like a camp icon in recent times like kind of in her post bionic career where like her commercial success has declined on a certain level but she's become so much the providence of gay men and has become a cult figure amongst us I think in a big way so that's really interesting to think that her first song stands in a way as like a a song that's been claimed by the LGBTQ community. That's a very interesting point. So how did she get a record deal? I mean, is her record deal something that she got before Reflection or does Reflection lead to the record deal?
1: After Reflection happened, she moved to Japan for a period. And this was an in interim between Reflection and Christina Aguilera self-titled. Somewhere in there that a record deal happened. I don't know if it was struck up in the original deal with Reflection via Disney. As soon as Reflection hit, she began doing live shows, began falling into like the pop star ways. And then I think shortly thereafter, <laughs> the record deal was struck. And then they expedited that because they had someone who had a hit on their hands. And in that days, it's sort of, well, she's had a proven success. People want more from her and what people loved about that song in particular was her voice. And people were so enthralled by this idea that someone so young could have such a powerful and I think soulful voice. And I think Mm. one of the reasons why people have long connected with Christina's voice, because, you know, there are a lot of good voices out there. And I don't want to make a lateral comparison, but I will for a moment, just to say, (laughs) I think one of the differences between someone like Christina Aguilera's voice and someone like Demi Lovato's voice is that I think Demi's voice, and they are a great singer, it's not a diss at them in any way, But they sort of lack a soul that I think Christina was just born with. And I think people really latched on to that soulful quality. But like, I think at that time, before she was, you know, referencing Etta James and all of these figures that she later paid tribute to on Back to Basics, I think in the beginning it was people saying, oh, we hear Etta James in this, you know, people were echoing that to her. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's one of those voices that's just completely undeniable, like from the minute you hear it the first time. So the thing that happens, though, is that reflection becomes a big hit. But before Christina can start to roll out her solo record, which I know she's recording sometime in the interim between R- Reflection and this moment, another pop star kind of emerges. And I know that this comparison is irritating on some level, but I think we, we would be remiss to not talk about it, which is Britney emerges. And Britney releases the definitive female pop debut album of this era. Six months before Genie in a Bottle, Christina's lead single from her debut album comes out. My So Christina's former Mickey Mouse Club compatriot has become this giant phenomenon with this very distinct image and sound. And I believe that they're friendly, but they're obviously extremely different artists, and yet their legacies feel entirely intertwined in this way that I'm sure Christina and Britney both resent on some level. So I want to have that out there as kind of a pretext or a table setting for Christina's debut single, which is Genie in a Bottle, which then drops six months later in the middle of the Britney phenomenon. Talk to me for a second about Genie in a Bottle and how you feel like it stands in relation to Britney and the other teen pop of this moment, and whether you even like see that song as a definitive Christina song. Because
1: I, okay, so talk to me about Genie in a Bottle. I think Genie in a Bottle is really important to this day of all of the early christina songs genie is such a weird song and even outside of the christina canon nothing sounds like genie in a bottle yeah like it's just so odd and then obviously i understand the entendre there but it's also like it's not ridiculously clear it's a very strange song (laughs) in terms of like what the intended message was and then like sonically it's just really there's nothing quite like it whereas like what a Girl Wants, Come On Over, oh, I get the formula at play here, but I actually think Jeannie is, like, such a weird song, and I actually think amongst her early work, I definitely think Jeannie in the Bottle is the song that holds up the best and also feels the least of its time. And that's mm. not a good or a bad thing, but I think it's significant. But you don't
0: feel like it's a prototypical Christina song. I don't. Do you? Well, what was interesting to me, so I went back and I was listening to it all. I had a couple thoughts. The first was... Christina releases this debut album in this teen pop wave, but she's the only major artist to emerge at this moment who is not working with Max Martin. And I thought that that was a really interesting distinction. You have Britney, you have Backstreet, you have NSYNC. They're all having their hits written by this one man in his factory of songs. Max Martin does not work on Christina's debut album. So I thought that was an interesting divergent point between her and a group of artists that she often gets linked together with. The other thought that I had listening to Jeannie and Ababa Which obviously, as we know, goes on to become an absolute smash hit, is number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for numerous weeks and really establishes Christina's pop stardom. But I think the thing that I thought about it was, even though I agree, it doesn't sound like the Max Martin songs as much as it could have. I do think it's one of the only songs that I really hear of Christina's that could have been a Britney song on some level. It's not utilizing her voice in the way that is what makes Christina Aguilera unique. And again, like a lot of songs in that era, as you were getting at, it is a sort of lascivious come hither song sung by a teen, which is in the mold of kind of like a Britney song. This mold of like a teen girl singing like a frothy post R and B with a pop sheen song, where she's kind of cooing, that does sort of tie it together in a way with the Britney and larger teen pop movement in a way that feels a little bit like a red herring in terms of what Christina is actually capable of as an artist. Do you know what I mean? Also, just
1: what is the price to pay? <laughs> Like if you, you want to be me. with me, baby, there's a price to pay. It's like, you know, it reminds me of the like the price uh, is the
0: rub. The price is the rub. You've got, got to it. rub her the right way. That's the price of admission. Got it.
1: Yeah. But it reminds me of like wanna be with the spice girls, which is like if you wanna be my lover, you gotta get with my friends. And it's like, wait, what? You this, wait, Polly This is a,
0: this is an era of completely nonsensical lyrics written largely by Swedish mm. men, although Genie and Bottle is not written by a Swede. So I don't know what their excuse was. And I think
1: that there's something too, and I know it gets sampled quite a bit, but that
2: ooh. ooh uh.
1: It reminds me of the opening three chords from Baby One More Time. It has a hold over people. You hear that and it's just like it's really transportive. But you don't hear that
0: song and realize why Christina is actually different from some of these other. You know what I mean? That's the thing that I sort of was latching onto at this listen through. Yeah. So this song becomes a huge hit. And then she puts out her debut album, her self-titled debut album. What's happening musically on that album aside from Genie in a bottle?
1: What's notable, and this was not uncommon for artists at that time, but it's like of the first five tracks on that album, four of them were singles. It really leaned into this idea that she proved, which is that she was a hit maker. Mm-hmm. It just was like one great song. What a- After another great song.
2: For a sheep from the storm, for a friend, for a love to keep me safe and home, I turn to you.
1: A company with great visuals and all very, very different. Very different. It's interesting because we're so in this like time now of eras being like right. album cycle eras, but almost which, in a switch, let's
0: just say christina loves an album era cycle
1: oh my god does she ever but also one could argue especially in this beginning stage it was like the difference between i turn to you and come on over you could call those separate eras unto themselves so she was just really experimenting with what it meant to be christina aguilera both as an artist and then as like i imagine as a human being coming up in your late teens in the public eye
0: was it her though? I mean that's the question. When I was listening back to it I was like, to, you know, we've talked a little bit about the sort of scientific engineering of some of the albums in this era. When I listen to this as you said, you listen to the first four or five songs on the self-titled album and you get this sort of like lascivious Britney-esque song, you get come on over to me as a very sort of like mid-period Mariah disco indebted song.
2: All I want is you.
0: get the big ballad you get like a brandy sounding song you make
2: me feel so emotional i can't let go
0: And I know that, you know, she has since talked about the fact that like she doesn't really feel a ton of ownership over this work,
1: right? No, I think you have that totally right. I think that what happened coming out of this album was like a big effort to distance herself from this sound that I think as a longtime fan was always such a bummer because yes, it's very evident that like artistically, this is the album she had the least say in, but it's still her. It's still her work. And we, we, the fans really love it. So it's always been one of those like frustrating things with Christina the lengths to which she's gone to like again when she performs the songs from this album which she does now a couple of them Mm -hmm. it's always remixed she would never do it as is and it's kind of like it's a bummer it's a bummer
0: well it's just interesting because I think We could frame so much of Christina's career post this as one huge movement to establish herself as a credible artist. A lot of her career has been a reaction to this emergent moment where she got pegged as one of these ciphers. So I think that was interesting listening to it. But the fact is, it really is a pretty enjoyable album to listen to. As a piece of work, it's way more enjoyable than Hit Me Baby One More Time, the album is. I actually was going back and reading some contemporaneous reviews with it. And Kenneth Fletcher at Billboard talked about it as a soul diva working within record label constraints. And I sort of had that vibe when I was listening to it, especially when you go through the back half of the album. There's much more of like an R&B inflected tone to a lot of the songs than you would expect listening to the first half of the album where all the singles are hidden in there is the songs that showcase the voice the songs that showcase more of the soul singing aspect of
2: it
0: but at the same time If you just are looking at that era as the singles, the massive successful singles, I mean, Genie's number one, What A Girl Wants number one, Come On Over number one, I Turn To You, I think is a top five hit. So all these big smashes that are all great, but perhaps sort of obscuring what makes her, her in a sense. And I got that listening back to the to the back of the album. It did feel like she was confined, I guess, is what I sort of walked away from that thinking. Yes, absolutely. So this album goes on to be a big success. At the time, how is she publicly relating to these songs? I mean, after the album is a success, a lot of teen pop stars of this era are cranking out albums at a like rapid pace. Britney moves on and is releasing like an album every single year that are sort of building on the same formula of the first record and sort of slowly trying to maybe develop more of an individual personality but are more or less updates of the sound per year in this first era. Christina doesn't do that so do you have any insight in terms of like how she feels at the time despite her massive success about how she is established in public consciousness?
1: There's obviously the lapse between 2000 and 2002 but I mean I think at that point you know you have Lady Marmalade in 2001.
0: Right. which is like weirdly one of her biggest hits too and we shouldn't we shouldn't right. overlook that yeah
1: and also when you look back on Lady Marmalade it is notable that not to be that person I love all the girls but if you were to take one out and have the song claps it would be Christina. Like she is that song in so many right. ways, just because of her verse and the hair and blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, she got the crowning spot on the song, I think controversially amongst the other ladies. I mean, um. <laughs> You're not going to comment on that.
1: <laughs> you have My Kind of Christmas in 2000. You have Lady Marmalade. And a Spanish top of- album, right? And the Spanish album. Well, that yes, but that was very soon after the first album. So I I think the career was moving full steam ahead. Yes, I agree that Britney churned out three albums in three years, but I think Christina was on a different trajectory, but I don't think it was like the pace with which we get Christina albums these days, it was nowhere near that slow churn. I think she just was taking a little bit of time to figure out the onslaught of fame, and also the velocity of fame for Britney, for Christina, for these people. They weren't just famous quickly, they were the most famous people in the world right away. Let's compare this today, for instance, to like an Olivia Rodrigo, who many of us, myself included, just discovered because of driver's license. But she was on this show, High School Musical, The Musical. She had time to just cultivate a level of fame and sort of like work her way up. And I just think that these people, it happened so quick and they were everywhere. So I think that she was settling into this idea that being a pop star was going to be not just a full-time job, it was going to be her life.
0: It's interesting because I agree with you and I think you're probably right about that. But you have to speculate, given what Stripped becomes, that she must have bucked pressure to release more studio albums in this interim. There is no question, given what she returns as in 2002, she had to... Fight for that—it's obvious—and I think she wears that as a badge of honor in her career.
1: It has to be, yeah. I mean, not only that, but also just the fact that she came back and she was working with the likes of like a Dave Navarro or a Linda Perry, like who she chose to bring on board for album two. It's not just the waiting game that she took, but also the artistic control. Yes, I have to imagine that there were forces at play, being like, "Let's get self-titled two into production straight away," and she must have had to have laid down the law. What's interesting about that is, it's like at the end of the day. Contracts are contracts. So the fact that she was able to either get out of a contract, renegotiate a contract, whatever went down there, that to me is a really interesting story that has yet to be told.
0: How was she seen by the public in relation to? The other teen pop people like do you think she was viewed as distinct or do you think she just got lumped in
1: I think one thing and this has always been Christina's Achilles heel to me to me I'm just speaking it <laughs> yes. to me just but I don't think she is a great interview I don't think Britney mm-hmm. is the greatest interview no. but I think Britney had a level of relatability and streakliness and genuine what? sweetness that came through that endeared you to her mm. and I think Christina Nina, I was gonna say it's a roughness around the edges, but that's not even what it is. She just lacks a certain charisma that's sort of not needed, but can help in sort of endearing the public. So what have you? the
2: past few months have been like for you? It must be pretty dizzying. Um, it it, it is. It's. You know, every day is practically a different city, long flights and not enough sleep and, um, you know, and missing a home and things like that. And, you know, it's a lot of work, too. You have to stay focused and, and well on top of things if you want it to happen so. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work.
1: You know, there's a clip of Christina that's often shared on the interwebs of her talking about the release of Lotus with the it's coming, it's coming. And it's just various clips of her saying the album is coming through the years. I think the underlying joke of that joke is the fact that Christina Aguilera is really good at saying nothing a lot. Right. Whereas like you look at like Madonna or Cher and you have all these famous moments like interviews over the years. Right i don't think christina has delivered that and i think what happens for christina in terms of the general public's view on her is that they don't get a solid idea of who she is and i think because britney had the virgin thing tacked onto her whether by choice or by a record label she came with this veneer of who she was that christina didn't have and i think that in her mind stripped was a rebellion to the box that she was being put into but in my mind The problem for a lot of people was an inability to figure out what box Christina should go in.
0: Mm -hmm. And the music didn't necessarily help on that first record.
1: Right. All right,
0: so then she returns in 2002 with a pretty radical image and sonic overhaul that I remember being absolutely scandalized by. So she records this new record, and the lead single is a song called Dirty, which could not be... Further removed from this pristine pop image and sheen of her debut.
2: Oh, I'm overdue, give me some room, come through. Pay that dose in the mood. Be a girl from the shade of food. She just couldn't show you. Let's get good at it. That's my chance. I need that to get me off, sweating till my clothes come off.
0: And Frankly, further removed from even the like very cutely lascivious moves that Britney had made in her career. I mean, Dirty makes I'm a Slave for You look like jingle
2: bells. Uh-huh.
0: So. What is the sound of Dirty, and how does Dirty completely help us reimagine who Christina Aguilera is as an artist?
1: Well, first, I think it's really interesting looking at the conversation happening right now around Jesse Nelson, formerly Little Mix, and the blackfishing allegations that Jesse is grappling with. Because I think if this era would have emerged 20 years later, it would have received a very different reception. Because I think people, young people in particular really embraced this side of Christina for many reasons, but the way she positioned it was that this is the real me. This has been the real me all along. I'm just finally at a place where I or the powers that be are allowing it to be shown. And I think that was really crucial in that she presented it in a way that was not, this is the new me. It was like, no, no, no. This was always me. Right. now it's your time it's your turn to see me and again with stripped and even like those intros and everything it was very much centered around this is who i am now you get to meet me you've known me for three years or more if you were following reflection etc but now you get to finally meet me
2: allow me to introduce myself want you to come a little closer i'd like you to get to know me a little bit better
1: Musically, you have Redman on the album, so you have the introduction of like rappers. Whereas, like, I just remember, I think it was like a year earlier, we were getting her singing with Brian McKnight, you know, no. at some <laughs> award show. So we go from Brian McKnight to Redman. So it's just a different sound in so many ways. And the song is an interpolation of his song "Get
2: Dirty."
1: What's interesting, though, is it's like funny to think about Dirty because one of the big pushbacks with self-title was the inability to really sing. And what's funny about Dirty, this lead single from Stripped, is it's one of the few songs on the album that is like doesn't require any vocal mm-hmm. prowess in any mm-hmm. way, or not a ton of it, so it's interesting that they chose it as the first single, but I think, accompanied with the visual, the MTV machine's really starting to whirl mm-hmm. so, not that it wasn't before them, but it's like really you know, you get Diary and Untucked like whatever Untucked is on Drag Race, you had like a 30 of those on MTV at the time, there's right. always a chance to like, making the video behind yeah. the scenes, everything was like, let's show you 10 angles of everything, Right. so yeah, I definitely think that musically and visually. It was just a shift in every sense, and it was startling because you think about Madonna, there are other artists before her, it's not that it hadn't been done, yeah. but it hadn't been done in a minute, right. and I think, again, because of the age thing, that was a huge factor, because when Madonna was coming out and eating ass and whatnot, she was in her <laughs> 20s, and so it was looked at differently than Christina, who, even though at this point, what, she had to have been 20, 21, I'm not exactly sure her exact age, but has every right to present herself however she wants. I still think people were tied to this idea of like, oh, that's the girl from the Mickey Mouse Club. Here's her ass.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it is garish in a way that was shocking. It wasn't just the sexualization. It was the black highlights in the hair and the the smeared eye makeup. I mean, there was something dirty about it. I mean, there was something actually kind of dirty about it. And I think as you were sort of hinting at, but we didn't lay on the table, there was an appropriation of hip hop culture and aesthetics in the video and
1: song. And it went beyond that. Her vocal intonations in interviews completely changed. If you go back and watch interviews of Christina Aguilera from that time, it's kind of like Madonna taking on the British accent when she was dating Guy Ritchie. Did you have a chunk of time off where you weren't even thinking about coming back? Because it's obviously been a while.
2: I definitely wanted to disappear for a minute from the spotlight, and I definitely had to just take a break from all that to even save my sanity enough to sit down and really gather all the notes that I'd written about. And kind of gather all that together and um, be able to form it into song form.
1: But even in So it's that same thing again, where it's like it, it was beyond just the artistry it became something so much bigger that again, I think we'd look at very differently now.
0: So dirty comes out, you know, it's actually, I remember it just as a huge iconic video and stuff, but in reality, it wasn't a very successful lead single. I believe it peaked at number 50 something on the billboard hot 100. It definitely isn't reaching the sort of commercial heights of the songs on her first record, which was interesting to me because I think for us as MTV watchers and teens at the time, it seemed like such a monumental moment. And I just remember being absolutely scandalized by it and Mm. titillated in a fun way i do think it's a little bit of a fake out on the album though i don't necessarily think that when i go back and listen to the rest of stripped i'm hearing other dirties on there so what's happening on stripped both aesthetically and in what she's singing about aside from dirty well
1: it's interesting you say that because it's like there's dirty and get mine get yours which are like you know cinematic parallels if you will And then right. beyond that, it's like you get like, oh my god, like I had to witness my mom abusing my dad.
2: Heard me to see the pain across my mother's face. Every time my father's fist would put her in her place.
1: If anything, this was Christina saying, I have a lot to say, and not only that, there's breadth. To what I want to say. The things that I've experienced. I want to be able to be vulnerable with you. And I want to be able to walk around the shops. I want to be not this monolithic entity. Mm -hmm. And I also want you to understand that I'm in the driver's seat. And I think that is one of the ways in which, to her, it really started to separate her from Britney, not just image-wise, but it just seemed at the time that Britney was much more comfortable in the role of entertainer. And Christina seemed to want to be someone that was seen as like the empresario of their fame.
0: Mm -hmm. And of their artistic journey.
1: Yeah, and so I think the big moment for Stripped, Walk Away, is the song that I still play from that album the most and I think really represents that moment in Christina's career the best and it's the first song where you really got to hear Christina sing Mm -hmm. like that it really is the defining moment obviously you get more of them on stripped and obviously like beautiful is the one that people will cite because it was the single but if you're talking about album order walk away is it is so affecting and again going back to that soulful term it's not just that she sounds good it's that she's singing as someone who either has been through some shit or is really good at faking
2: it. Got
0: You know, that's so interesting that you say that because, you know, I've listened to Stripped so many times. I do think it's the superlative Christina Album in many ways. And I just was thinking this time as I went through it. And it's this sort of builds on what I was saying earlier about her debut. If you strip the singles away from Stripped, sorry, not to use that twice... You have Dirty, you have Fighter, you have Beautiful. They're all kind of like bombastic pop singles in different ways. You actually are left with like a relatively low-key kind of soul R&B pop album. Mm. So in a way, I almost was thinking this time as I went through it, the singles again feel like red herrings. I mean, Dirty, definitely. I mean, Dirty is a song that if you listen to Dirty and were like, here's the album with the lead single Dirty, you would not expect to necessarily get an album like Stripped, which is loaded with low to mid-tempo R B soul songs Whether you're talking About Walk Away I think great example Of this Impossible A song written by A very huh. low key RB and soul singer Alicia Keys I
2: don't know What hurts you I just I wanna make it right Boy I'm sick and tired Of trying to read
0: Even songs like Get Mine, Get Yours, these aren't like bombastic pop singles. They're low-key songs that are meant to be showcases for her voice and the soulful grit and sort of breath of her voice. And I thought that that was really interesting in terms of like a second album that, again, while very different from the first album, has a group of singles that don't necessarily speak to the kind of record that she's trying to make necessarily.
1: Right. And then I also think it's just like, it's worth meditating on Beautiful for many reasons.
0: Well, before you do that, let me just set up for People So Dirty kind of underperforms, which is interesting having taken all this time off. And the album and the narrative of how it goes is rescued by this song, Beautiful, which is while also bombastic in its own way, very sonically different than Dirty. It is a spare piano ballad about
2: self-acceptance. Every day is so wonderful and suddenly. It's now and then I get the so
0: why does that song save stripped and why is that song becomes christina's signature song do you think
1: I think that her finding a songwriter like Linda Perry who she vibed with, I think was so important. They have continued to collaborate together over the years, but I really think that they are such a magical pairing together, and I got the sense that Linda understood her in a way, that was someone who herself had been through the industry, understood the sort of patriarchal structures that exist in the music industry, and was also able to say fuck you to all of this, and I think that really resonated for Christina. I also think the POV of the song is so specific and so antithetical to so much pop, because Mm. Pop music structurally is all about, and no, not just pop music. I mean, hip hop, r and so much of music is about I'm the best. I'm the shit. I mean, literally right. the first opening track of Nicki Minaj's debut album is I'm the best. Literally, right. it's like that's sort of like what so much of music is about. And for the POV to be I am beautiful verse one, you are beautiful verse two, we are beautiful verse three, and the crescendo of that all, the message there and sort of the turning of the lens so smartly allows it to sort of like, I've seen her in concert so many times, I've watched every effing YouTube performance she's done Mm. of that song, and it always kind of lands, and it always is able to affect because the message there is so much bigger than Christina. you mentioned the video before groundbreaking and showing you know you have these two gay men kissing you also had i believe it's trans representation i'm not sure but you have a male presenting figure mm-hmm. who seems to be cross-dressing in some way but then also you have a person with a visible eating disorder mm-hmm. it's inviting this idea in that there's not a standard of beauty out there right and it's right. also christina aguilera pop superstar goddess co-signing this idea that mm-hmm. like beauty is not monolithic which i think was really important and she subverted her image so much that she was not
0: looking traditionally beautiful at that time which was very interesting you know it's her conviction that i think lands the song like she clearly connects to this idea of being an outsider and of feeling less than enough and she's willing to put that out there and i do think that becomes a prototypical christina thing i mean christina has a lot of songs including the follow-up single fighter and to some degree the follow-up single can't hold us down. songs about being an underdog and reclaiming your status as an outsider or after being downtrodden sort of finding your voice and I think that's yes. like a big thematic thing on Christina Aguilera songs that Beautiful I guess is sort of the crown jewel of in her discography so Beautiful becomes a massive era defining ballad the follow up singles then also become very successful Fighter is a huge hit she does like a bit of a sort of taste making thing you know Linda Perry had worked with Pink before so I guess that wasn't really her selection necessarily, but she was able to pick Linda Perry out as a collaborator. Scott Storch, who had been a big hip-hop producer, and then went on to produce like tons of huge hits for Beyonce and numerous other pop singers. She picked him out. He produced most of this record. I think at least half the songs on this record. So Strip goes on to be a huge hit. Again, though, like the debut, It's sonically a smorgasbord that's really held together by her vocals and her personality as a pop star. I think people still see that as the definitive Christina album. And it's interesting to have that be an album that feels kind of like it's so all over the place. It's like you've got a rock song, you've got hip hop songs, you've got these soul ballads, you've got weird indie nods on makeover. There's lots of different palettes on there. And I think it sort of fortifies Christina as I'm an artist who makes huge album statements. I'm not the kind of artist that like cranks out material on a schedule. Like I need to reinvent myself each time I make an album and it has to have a very clear new perspective and image. It has to feel like fully encompassed era. And I think that that really comes to fruition on her next few projects for better and for worse. Cause sometimes I think these projects are belabored in a way that I wonder how it's affected her career. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but she then basically comes off of the huge success of Stripped and takes four years to record a follow-up album. That's an eternity in the pop landscape. And she reemerges in 2006 with a double album called Back to Basics. That is at least aesthetically, kind of a 180 again from Stripped. I mean, she's sort of now presenting herself as a pinup in the style of Rita Hayworth and Marilyn Monroe. And she's got the perfect hair of the era. I mean, not to be productive about it, but it's clean looking. (laughs) She looks quite different. And she comes out with a record that I think is maybe her first sonically cohesive aesthetic idea, which is she wants to make a record that is like a throwback to soul records. So talk to me a little bit about what the aesthetics of Back to Basics are as you see them.
1: Well Christina's really big on saying that she likes to take time between albums and live life. She wants to have things to write about and in the interim between Stripped and this album she met her first husband Mm -hmm. Jordan Bratman and so Mm -hmm. this album is very much in many senses a love letter to him but then you get tracks like Hurt for instance so it's like it's not entirely an album of love because basically it's like No but
0: it's a marriage album. It's split into two right? You've got two records. What's happening on disc one?
1: The first one you're getting Christina Aguilera music historian. She is Saying, listen, I know you think I'm the pop girl, but I'm not gonna just gonna tell you what I grew up listening to and why I'm sort of a woman of music, but I'm going to show you.
2: wanted beside. And of every lyric and melody, every single rhyme. So here I stand today. For me, who laid it down and paved the way. And so to God, I pray yeah. that he will give me strength to carry forward the gift of song. It is good fa. It is good faith And
1: so it's very much giving you retrospective. You know, she brings in Steve winwood for makes me want to pray. You're... Saying,
2: oh, 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 oh. I got going
1: basically it's really allowing her voice to be uncaged in a way and it's giving you a mixture of signature christina but also you know you literally have track three back in the day she's really making an effort both in her vocals and in the accompanying image as you mentioned of saying i am a studied woman of music i am continuing the torch of my foremothers and my forefathers
0: There's a grandiosity to her, and I think that that comes across, um, especially on a song like Back in the Day, where she wants to be seen in the lineage of like these extremely iconic artists, and she's letting you know about that. Do people find that off-putting on some level?
1: I don't know the answer to that, but <laughs> I didn't see it that way. I didn't see it as her positioning herself among them. I saw it as her positioning herself as in the shadow of these greats. Like, right. I, didn't, I didn't see her as saying, I'm on that level. I saw it as, I couldn't be here today if it weren't for those who came before me. And I don't think it was her saying, I do it just as well as them. Right. I think it was her just saying, listen, you might be comparing me to Madonna, but who I'm listening right. to is these figures. I saw it as being very respectful of them. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But Christina yes. likes to bring the pomp and circumstance. I mean, let's be honest about that.
1: She is the pomp and circumstance. <laughs> you yes, agree.
0: What's interesting to me about this first disc in particular, and this is my favorite Christina album, just putting my cards on the table. I think it's the most fluid she's ever sounded. I feel like it's the most that she sort of like sounds just kind of like in her pocket but you know what's interesting about the first album on the second record she does kind of like try to make analog sounding songs that could nod to Billie Holiday or whatever
2: I've got trouble 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 always knocking at my door
0: However, on the first album, she does this by creating kind of 90s style hip-hop soul sampling tracks, largely produced by DJ Premier. It's interesting, like they almost sound A, like work he's produced for Jay-Z, that work he's produced for Nas, work in his group, Gangstar. Yeah, Waiting for your next mistake. I put in work and watch my status
2: are
0: sample-based hip-hop tracks that she's singing over that utilize samples from these artists, but she's not trying to recreate eight Billy Holiday songs on that first disc of Back to Basics in a sense. And a song like Ain't No Other Man, which is the lead single and is a is a big hit, is in conversation with a song like Crazy in Love in terms of just like a sample-based soul song that's like utilizing hip hop to sort of modernize it. As you said, on the second half, she has a lot of these tender songs that she records analog with Linda Perry, which is like a really interesting, I think they actually like record them all with live instruments.
2: When I'm about to fall, somehow you're always waiting with your open arms to catch me. You're gonna save me from myself. So,
0: like, what is, like, the public reception? I mean, I know Ain't No Other Man is a huge hit. The rest of the singles on that record don't necessarily take off in the way that some of her past hits have. Why do you think that is?
1: Candyman, I think, had a moment, but Candyman feels referential. It doesn't feel like its own thing. So with Candyman, it doesn't feel like a Christina Aguilera song. It almost feels like a commercial that Christina Aguilera filmed for something else. <laughs> But I think the reception was generally pretty favorable. I just Definitely think that the hoopla... Critically.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I just think the hoopla of Christina Aguilera as like the pop culture dominating female that she had been with Stripped waned a bit. And as a result, I think, and again, in a misogynistic media landscape, this will continue to be her narrative for albums to come. But I think when stacked against the last album, seen as not as successful, and I think that people really wanted, and when I say people, I think journalists, some, Mm -hmm. not all, wanted the opportunity to make it seem as though she was unable to match the high highs of Stripped.
0: I just wonder if her commitment to the bit in a way kind of like the double-edged sword. I Ain't mean, No Other Man being somewhat adjacent to Crazy in Love aside, she wasn't trying to make necessarily a record that was fully in conversation with the sounds of that era. I mean, the other big record of that year was Justin Timberlake's Future Sex Love Sound, all about the future. It's all about sort of making up-tempo, you know, disco, EDM, presaging dance music. She very much was like, I'm an artist that makes albums. I'm an artist that has album eras and aesthetics that are my personal artistic inspiration. And I think that's for her commercial detriment in some ways, I think, that is borne out in some of her later records but Back to Basics is still a huge album really successful. You know, a third album where Christina Aguilera is a huge pop musical figure, and again, critically lauded. I think this is a record that was her one of her best received in terms of just the musical critical community.
1: Yes. Also, the tour was huge, and if you get a chance, she filmed a live version of the tour in Adelaide, Australia, and it's just, the production of the tour itself is just, it's the best of the best of Christina. Right, and it's kind of her last major arena
0: tour. So again, Christina then disappears for four years. I mean, this is a trend. Christina likes to to, like take her time as you said she clearly like looks for inspiration and she makes a lot of points in the interim between back to basics and bionic her fourth album about how she wants to move into making more kind of futuristic dance music she drops a one-off single on her greatest hits album that is an electronic sort of goldfrapp nodding song called keeps getting better in 2007
2: Some days I'm a super big.
0: To her chagrin, I'm sure, while she's away working on Bionic, EDM and dance music become the centerpiece of pop. You have Lady Gaga emerging in
2: 2008.
0: You've got Rihanna dominating the charts. So in the midst of her working on this album of dance songs that she's touting for years in advance, this music becomes the center of popular music. So by the time she returns with the lead single from Bionic, Not Myself Tonight, which might have sounded radical at a certain point a few years earlier, it sounds a little bit like it's riffing on things that are already happening. Which I do not think was her aim to begin with. Now, Bionic is obviously a huge point of fascination amongst the internet community, amongst the gay community. It's her first real commercial failure of an album. But as she has stated numerous times, she feels it was ahead of its time. And many people also feel that way. There's a huge move into justice for Bionic. So let's talk about
1: Bionic. What's going on on her 2010 album, Bionic? I mean, Bionic is Christina's attempt to be ahead of the curve which i have no doubt she was in the production of the album and i mean not for nothing she recruited so many superstars some of whom were newbies like Nicki minaj I'm
2: a little tipsy, play along. Oh, okay that nani mm, mm, nani in the Montreal, mm, mm, in miami but then yeah. you
1: have like your mia and like just so many incredible ladytron and sia and it is a wild listening to christina aguilera
0: make a song in the vocal silence of mia yeah <laughs> is what i call your love for me it comes and goes and pins me like a
2: trampoline but all this back and forth is freaking
1: obviously there's a whole lore behind bionic i think if bionic had been released as like eps a la body talk it would have gotten a definitely like a different response but i just think what ended up happening was between when the album was made and when the album was marketed as you mentioned so many competitors out there that she was compared to Again, misogynistic media cycle. Yes. Um, but I, I just think that there was an effort to make Christina Aguilera look like a clown. And because Christina has this braggadocious personality. Right, exactly. <laughs> she personality. didn't take well to the comparisons. She went the low road in, in some instances and in sort of criticizing her contemporaries. And I think it didn't work out well because in her mind, Lady Gaga was like this one hit wonder. She was Christina Aguilera. And right. look how that all turned out.
2: But she's <laughs> since changed
1: her tune. But I think with Bionic, it just was like as a whole body of work I think bionic's biggest shortfall is the fact that it just doesn't show her off vocally mm. at all there's a couple tracks but like it's not doing the instrument justice whereas when you look at the predecessor back to basics you had so many incredible moments for her voice so I think ultimately I really do enjoy bionic I'm gay but <laughs> I think that it's not the album that she set out to make
0: well you know what I was thinking when I was listening to bionic today I was like it really speaks to how gay culture was in 2010 that she even thought that this album could be anything other than a gay cult classic because it is right. one gay ass fucking album i mean there's a song called glam there's a song called vanity There are all of these songs that are so clearly gay anthems Ready, set, and when I listen to it now I'm like what how did she think this was going to be anything other than a gay club album but the truth of the matter is that because of Lady Gaga and her central position in pop at that time it was a very gay era for pop so you could see what she was sort of thinking but what was interesting to me listening to Bionic was it's camp I mean I think it's unintentionally garish and tasteless in some ways which is fun but I kind of feel like she works better weirdly on the more conventional dance tracks to me than she does when she tries to be MIA like to me I find like songs like "Elastic Love" in the title track like kind of awkward, even though like I like that she swings for the fences and is trying for something weird. Bye, honey, take- I feel like songs like Not Myself Tonight or Desnudate or these songs that are kind of more conventional dance pop numbers work really well for her. And like, I actually really enjoy them. And I'm surprised in some ways that they weren't bigger hits considering that Britney, uh, not to bring Britney into it again, is having big EDM hits that are not so sonically distant in this era from songs like Not Myself Tonight.
2: Never felt like felt like this before Come on get me get me on the floor DJ, what you what you waiting for
1: oh, oh, oh. Well I think Christina because not myself tonight came out the gate had the Gaga comparisons and was kind of made fun of We only got one other single from this album You Lost Me Right
0: which is like one of the only songs on the album that doesn't fit into the sort of bionic futuristic theme <laughs>
2: It's
1: She makes a very weird video for "You Lost Me," so we only get two singles from this album. Woohoo is only a promotional single. Right. Her belief in the album itself stalls so quickly, and so I think that signaled to so because the backlash was just not. She just hated the backlash against it. Essentially. Yeah, and like the tour was canceled, and it just it just felt like dead yeah, on arrival a, in a way. Yeah, right. She she
0: sort of fought into the the notion of it
1: underperforming.
0: Right. You think she gave up on it too early in a sense?
1: Oh, absolutely. But I also think that was her first time having a real commercial quote-unquote failure because mind you right like this album charted. it's not a failure by any measure (laughs) but it was a failure in the fact that she'll always be held up against her early career and I think that being that she made an artistic decision not to be that artist it's kind of unfair to hold her to that rubric but it's, that's what happens. Well, and,
0: and I mean, let's, to be frank, her, at least in terms of albums and solo singles, she's never fully recovered commercially from Bionic's underperformance. And, you know, I, I, I'm just intrigued by the fact that, like, looking back on Bionic, I, I appreciate her sort of garish swings for the fences on some of these weirder songs, but there's plenty of songs on this album that I felt like could have worked. And I think that's interesting insight that you're giving in terms of, like, her giving up on it. Because there are songs on this record to me that I'm like, if Britney can have hits in this style, there's no reason that Christina couldn't so that's always been interesting to me but I also think it sets up a really interesting dynamic that sort of defined Christina's last 10 years of her career which is that pop has become and especially dance pop and these sort of old school divas of pop have become much more culty niche phenomenons generally speaking Mm. all pop stars are niche all pop stars are cult phenomenons and especially people that make sort of more pure pop music if you look at Kim Petras if you look at Charlie XCX they're all cult figures they're not really mainstream pop figures anymore and of course even no. Artists that were huge in the past, like Lady Gaga and Katy Perry, are much more the providence of gay men and are cult figures in their own ways, at least in terms of their mainstream musical output at this point. So, I had this thought listening to Bionic today that like Christina was kind of on the vanguard of something that I think maybe not uh, so much musically as she thought she was, but she was definitely on the vanguard of this notion of like modern pop divas just fully playing to their gay cult fan bases and becoming underdogs and in a way that's sort of helping their careers, weirdly, because Christina's career mm. has been
1: lifted by this cult status through the last 10 years in a sense, don't you think? I think it's been lifted in the last couple of years. I do not think it's in the last 10 years.
0: Because <laughs> she was maligned in this era, you feel like.
1: Yes, and I also think something shifted with Christina in the last two years. You see it on her social media. I think Christina right. has started to become a little bit more self-aware and there's a humor. There's just a, a winkiness in a, in a way that I think that she needed previously that she was not able to find. Maybe
0: it's helped her take herself a little bit less seriously because she can be very self-serious. She we can yes <laughs> famously yes so bionic underperforms although now is considered a cult classic and maybe like it kind of creates the notion of a flop uh, in, in a sense i think it's like one of the albums that sort of defines that term totally she doesn't take four years again I, you can tell she's shaken by how fast this next record comes out lotus it's the most conventional pop record she's made since the debut i would say wouldn't you say yes she works with max martin for the first time which is interesting given that she sort of steered clear of him early in her career when he was at the height of his success but this record also doesn't do much to improve her commercial prospects even though between you and me Evan your body is by far my favorite Christina single and maybe like one of my favorite songs of all time it's on another level it's on, like
2: you're like
1: we're completely aligned yes <laughs>
0: Can we just say that, like, if Ariana
1: had sung Your Body,
0: like, that would have gone number
1: one? Also, the I think you already know my name is just so legendary. Legendary. It's one of those great songs where it's like, she's right and she knows it. Like, yeah. she she earned it. It's such a great moment. And even though it's kind of like a slamming electro
0: track, you still get the voice. You know what I mean? Yes.
1: I have to say, though, like, as a super fan of Christina, I wouldn't say I'm a stan, but as a super fan, yeah. I do not like this album. Yeah. I think that there are so many. It's not good forgettable tracks. She really has nothing to say on the album, which I think is, like, significant. It
0: seems like a real commercial bid to just save her career. Like, the songs are personality list. I mean, going to Max Martin is just the most tell-on herself. Even though your body's so amazing, she went from this last album where she was collaborating with M.I.A. and Santa Gold and John Hill and, like, Switch and these weird producers to releasing a single with, like, the
1: hit maker of the 21st century. I mean, that's a tell-on, you know, about what the purpose of this album was. You know what I mean? And then again, like would happen with Bionic you get your body and then you kind of get let there be love is sort of like kind of released as a single they make a video kind of and right. then uh, she abandons it
0: and yet though like even though she has these two mega underperforming albums in a row her superstardom maintains i mean she has the voice she has hits on the features on moves like Jagger and on the great big world song say something
2: say something I'm going
0: But those sort of fluke featured hits aside, she hasn't been able to sort of click commercially again. I mean, Liberation, I think is like a pretty good album. It got good reviews. It was not commercially very successful. But I think that there's been this ability for her to sort of embrace her cult status in the last few years that's really helped her legacy. And when I went to the show at the Hollywood Bowl, like I know you did, there was just this feeling of like a lot of love between her and the audience. It's not like she's been able to reestablish herself commercially, but like what is it that's allowed her I guess like spend the last couple of years shoring up her legacy in some sense or embracing her status Mm. as kind of like a culty underdog or what is it about the last few years that it feels like there's been some sort of a narrative shift from just being a flop
1: she holds herself less up to the versions of her of the past Mm. I feel like there's a recognition that success is not the charts like success is not equal the most fans but rather sort of appeasing the fans that you've accrued over time right and I think a sense of humor has improved I think the fact that she is with someone who seems to make her very happy she has two children that she really loves I think she's settled into who she is in a way in which she feels less of a need to make statements you know Mm. for instance like albums like Stripped not that they're ubiquitous now by any measure but like rebellious women in the music industry is no longer such a sub-genre. Right. So I just think that whereas, you know, you got quotes 10 years ago with her making fun of Lady Gaga, I think the Christina of today is very quick to embrace someone like a Lady Gaga, collaborate with someone like a Demi Lovato, understand that not everyone is out to get her. Right. But I also want to underline the fact that I think that attitude that she seems to have had could have been completely founded because there could have been people that were out to get her. So (laughs) I think that she was a very famous person who became a less famous person and that shoe fit her better.
0: I totally agree and I also think A, grandiosity fits better with a grand dame than it maybe does as an upstart. And I think that that really suits her well. Like, she's actually works well as a godmother figure to, like, up-and-coming pop stars. And as you said, we now also are more respectful. And I think this is part of her legacy of pop stars that, like, really go against the mold as she did early in her career. I mean, she wasn't the first, but I think there's a lot of pop stars in the current generation that really look to what she did on Stripped and take that as sort of carte blanche to do the same for themselves and we're more accepting and encouraging of that as a culture and less shamey about it than we were during her time
1: and not for nothing people are quick to forget the fact that five or six years ago Mariah Carey had become a complete joke right and was able to refins her career and get the respect that she long deserved but this to say that I think careers have machinations yeah I think that there's great work from Christina ahead I do not think that her waning commercial success is anything to to look at as far as like the trend of who she is as a cultural figure.
0: Let's talk about the Pantheon a little bit. I have my opinions about what tier Christina is in in the
1: Pantheon. Do you have a thought? Well, I definitely think she would have to be a tier three using the rubric that's been laid out. Go ahead. Which sounds weird because you mentioned that there were five tiers I was like well she's obviously a two right but just in looking at the blueprint of it she doesn't sort of meet a lot of the standards for two so she's definitely a three but I just don't like using mere superstar tier because <laughs> mirror sort of sublimates her in a way but like we'll call her soup just superstar tier but yeah I definitely think she comfortably fits into that particularly because you say one or three al over the last half decade and it's like I think we've definitely gotten one, if that. Yes, we've got
0: one to three huge albums over at least half a decade. Definitely we have that. We have at least one album that a major hit with many hit songs. I think we had at least three of those. Uh, She's very well known and meaningful to anyone who is of prime age when she was having her moment. Absolutely. I mean, I think Christina to anybody in our generation is a meaningful pop cultural figure and star and all of her music is important to us. A beefy arsenal of hits she can still tour on. Absolutely. No question about that. Continues to make critically regarded work. I think She's moving in that direction, and frankly, when I think about the future of her career, I think she could move even further in that direction. Concur. If she released an album today, it would be something most pop fans would be interested in hearing. Mm, I mean, let's see, a large segment of the population... I don't know. I feel like liberation really came and went. I have to say, but
1: we'll throw that. But one I do to the think side. within that, though, I do think one thing about Christina is it's like the de facto thing that everyone agrees upon is that The Voice is one of the best yes. of her generation, if right. not of all time. Right. That aspect of her has never been called into question. Totally. Where have, there's been other great singers, The Voice wanes over time, and obviously Christine is still very young. But still, no matter what success she has or if the hit blah, blah blah the voice is there yes the voice is there
0: and that will be something that she can really work with like artists who work more in dance pop i think and have thinner voices have a harder time trying to convert in the later part of their career like christina could right. record a standards album christina could record straight up soul r&b album adult contemporary r&b album like that's not an avenue that's available to a britney you know britney's always gonna have to find a way to make contemporary sounding dance music and exactly launch a successful Vegas residency bitch she already did so that's definitely definitely that she hits that could tour large theaters and amphitheaters yes i think she also did that right before the pandemic didn't she so yeah i think I'm, I'm with you solid tier three superstar which is an amazing accomplishment i mean she is an absolute legend they don't call her legend x for nothing right evan
1: yeah legend <laughs>
0: so i guess my last question for you before we get out of here is what are underrated christina aguilera songs that you think the audience should hear. And you can name many, but end on the one that you want us to go out on. No,
1: I want to name just one.
0: Okay, just name one then.
1: (laughs) I Love You, Porgy. It's on YouTube. It's from a Grammy pre-concert. Again, one of her more perfect vocals. (laughs) Okay, okay.
0: All right, let's go out on Christine Aguilar's cover of I Love You, Porgy. A great showcase for her vocals. That's it. Evan, thank you so, so, so much for being on the podcast. I really, really appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. I
2: love you. Forgive me, don't let him take me, don't let him handle me.
0: Okay, that's it on Pop Pantheon. Christina Aguilera, a Tier 3 superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so much to the wonderful Evan Ross Katz for being such a fabulous guest. Please don't forget to get in the Apple Podcast comments and leave your requests for who you'd like us to fast-track an episode on. Is it Mariah? Is it Usher? Only you can decide. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and at DJ L O U I E X I V. Hop in the Discord. The link is in the bio and is also in the show notes of this episode. Check out the Christina Aguilera Essentials Spotify playlist, also in those locations. And until I see you next time, have a wonderful life. Bye bye.
2: with you forever. Bye bye. Someday I know he's coming to go